You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, God, we ask you that as we um, sit under your word this day, as we come with broken and helpless hearts, uh, tired and weary from lockdown, discouraged from being apart, that you would strengthen us. Whatever our weeks may have been like, whatever difficulties we may have endured over this year, we pour out our hearts to you and we ask God that you might hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What do you do when you feel absolutely helpless? Well, when you're confronted by a situation so dire and desperate that there is no way out, where do you turn? In, in fact, if there's one word, just one word that captures the experiences of our world today, surely it's got to be that word. Helpless. Where we're helpless to see our friends, our family and our church. Where we're helpless to protect ourselves from a virus. We're helpless to even leave our own homes. And as we reflect on our own lives, our individual helplessness is but a picture of our global helplessness, isn't it? I mean, we're facing a worldwide pandemic, a crisis in Afghanistan, and we wonder, what in the world can I possibly do? Sure, we can raise awareness, maybe even raise some money. They are good things to do. But they're a drop in the ocean, aren't they? If anything, as we raise awareness of an issue, it simply raises our awareness of just how helpless we are. No, friends, the truth is we are a helpless people in a helpless world. So what do you do? What do you do? Do you refuse to accept your helplessness? Do you, do you insist that, that you can still do something, that you can do anything to change and control your situation? Or in your helplessness, do you turn to God in prayer? Do you fall on your knees and plead with Him for mercy? Do you pour out your heart to the Lord? You see, friends, in the mid-11th century BC, there was a man, a man from a place called Ramah, a backwater, insignificant city in modern-day Israel. And his name was Elkanah. And he had a wife named Hannah. And can I tell you, if anyone, if anyone is a helpless person, it is this woman. Her situation is so dire and desperate that she has no way out. But in her helplessness, she models for us what all who are helpless ought to do. She turns to the Lord of armies and she pours out her heart in prayer. Friends, today we see four scenes around two locations. And then at the end, we're going to reflect on three truths for us today. Okay? Four scenes around two locations and then three truths for us today. In our first scene, we meet the family from Ramah. Uh, verse 3 tells us that Elkanah is a godly man who would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh. 
And it is here at Shiloh that we are introduced to Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, don't worry, we're going to meet these two men in just a few weeks. But for now, our story zeroes in not on Eli's two sons, but on Elkanah's two wives. They're the first named Hannah and the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. Friends, can you see we have a deliberate contrast set up here between Penina, who can bear children, and Hannah, who can have none. You see, childlessness has been a problem right throughout the Old Testament, hasn't it? Especially in light of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And especially in light of God's promise to bless Abraham with many, many children. You see, if children are one of God's great blessings, then there can be few greater curses than childlessness. You see, we we read of Hannah's barrenness and we remember Sarah's barrenness, don't we? And for those of us who have ears, we remember the barrenness of yet another woman. You see, in Judges 13, just some generations before 1 Samuel, there was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. Does that sound at all familiar? You see, notice that phrase, that insignificant, seemingly inconsequential phrase, there was a certain man. It appears in only two places in the entire Bible. Judges 13 about Manoah and 1 Samuel 1 about Elkanah. And you see, both these men have wives who cannot bear children. But the Lord, he gives a child to the wife of Manoah. And I wonder if you know who that child is. That child is Samson, the the judge who later delivers Israel from the Philistines, at least for a time. So when we read of Elkanah, we cannot help but think of Manoah. And when we read of Hannah, we cannot help but think of his wife. And we wonder to ourselves, might God do that again? Will he do for Hannah what he did for Manoah's wife? And will this child deliver Israel just like Samson did? You see, the family's crisis, it's bleak. Hannah was childless. But even from these very verse 3 verses, there are hints, aren't there? The Lord of armies might be at work. In our second scene, we see Elkanah's family travel from Ramah all the way to Shiloh to worship the Lord. And there at Shiloh, we feel, we witness, we even to one extent experience and enter into the depths of Hannah's grief. You know, there can be few tragedies as great as being unable to bear a child. There's an unresolved grief as you mourn a child you've never held and never known. But in the ancient Near East, and actually in many cultures today still, childlessness is not just full of sorrow. Childlessness is full of shame. You see, Hannah would have lived every day with people looking down on her, gossiping about her, even blaming her for her childlessness. You can only imagine, right, in a world where childlessness is a curse, Hannah would feel deeply ashamed. 
Now, her husband, Elkanah, he is a good man. He is a godly man. He loves her deeply. Look at it in verses 4 to 5. He gives her a double portion of meat, for he loved her. And not only does he love her, but he seeks to, he tries to, maybe he tries his best to comfort her as well. Verse 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkanah, there's no doubt he loves her. But I wonder how you would feel if you were Hannah. It's, it's a bit of a callous question, isn't it? I mean, how would you feel if you're either infertile or in a difficult situation and a loved one comes to you and asks, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Why are you troubled? But Hannah's grief is deeper still. Because not only does she suffer Elkanah's callousness, no, she experiences Panina's cruelty. In verse 6 and 7, Panina taunts her severely. She, she provokes her, she mocks her, she ridicules her. You can almost hear her, can't you? What's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Look at what you've done. How can you do this to our family? You had one job and that you also cannot do right. At least I can have children. To suffer is painful enough. To be told to cheer up hurts even more. But to be mocked, ridiculed, looked down upon, insulted for a tragedy that you did not want, did not ask for, and cannot control, there are a few more hurtful things than that. Even the priest Eli, gosh, the one person that you would hope would offer true comfort, even he misunderstands her. In verses 12 to 14, he sees Hannah praying. He he cannot hear her words, he can only see her lips. And look at what this priest of God does. He accuses her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Hannah's helplessness, let's face it, is beyond compare. Her husband is callous, her rival is cruel, and her priest lacks compassion. But surely, we we would have thought by now she surely hit rock bottom, but she only really hits rock bottom when she understands who truly is ultimately responsible for her childlessness. You see, in verses 5 and 6, we read not once but twice that the Lord kept Hannah from conceiving. You see, her childlessness is not simply the result of living in a fallen world, though she does. No, friends, can you see it is a direct result of God himself actively preventing her from bearing a child. Gosh, I mean, for Hannah, it would feel like the world, it would feel like even God is set against you. Who can blame her, right? No wonder in verse 7, she weeps and weeps and weeps and she cannot even eat. In her own words in verse 15, I am a woman with a broken heart. I am a woman with a broken heart. You see, this woman, she is the fontaine of the Old Testament. You can almost hear her sing, can't you? I dreamed a dream in time gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. 
I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream. I dream. Friends, some of us can resonate all too deeply with Hannah, can't we? I mean, for us, it might not be childlessness, though it might be. But, for, but Hannah speaks for all of us who have a broken heart, who feel helpless as we struggle with chronic and mental illness, who feel helpless as we grieve the sickness and death of those we love, who feel helpless having lost relationships dear to us, and who long for relationships we cannot have. And she speaks for all of us who endure the friend who cannot comfort us, the jerk who looks down on us, and the person who misunderstands us. Now, Hannah's plight is the plight of us all. And it represents the plight of Israel as well. You see, in weeks to come, we'll discover that Israel is a nation plagued by a corrupt priesthood, attacked by Philistine armies, and it is a nation where the word of God is silent. I mean, Israel's problem is perfectly described by the final words of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Do you see, friends, without a king, Israel is a helpless nation, and Hannah's helplessness is but a picture of theirs. But in verse 11... In verse 11, this woman, she, she, she models for all of us who are helpless what we must do. She turns to the Lord and she pours out her heart in prayer. Just look at how she prays. Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. You see, friends, Hannah, she prays to the Lord of armies, a a title for God which expresses his infinite power and might over the angels of heaven. A a title for God first used in Scripture of all places right here in 1 Samuel 1. Hannah cries out to the Lord of armies that he might remember and not forget. She is praying that God will act on his commitment to her. And if he does, she promises to devote her son to the Lord for the rest of his life. I mean, isn't it remarkable? A childless woman prays that God will give her a child. And yet she then promises to give that child back to the Lord for good. She prays that the Lord will help her, not just for her own sake, but for his own glory. In verse 15, just notice the pathos and the The compassion here. She pours out her heart before the Lord. She prays from the depth of her anguish and resentment. My gosh, when was the last time you prayed to God like that? Eli, he hears her prayer. He says to her, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. And suddenly, Hannah lifts her head. Her face lights up and finally she can eat for the Lord of armies has heard her prayer. 
And friends, can I tell you, from this point in the narrative, everything changes. That the narrative turns, and for the first time, this helpless woman has hope. The next day, Elkanah and Hannah wake up, and they do what they have always done. They worship the Lord. They, they then return to Ramah and are intimate with one another. And, and can I say, we then read the four sweetest words of this chapter. The Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. Isn't that beautiful? Now, let me be clear, it doesn't mean that the Lord ever forgot her. No, this is covenant language. To remember means to act. It means to honor a commitment. It means to answer a prayer. You see, Hannah prayed back in verse 11, remember and not forget me. And look here in verse 19. The Lord remembers and he gives her a son. It's beautiful, isn't it? The one who everyone forgets, the Lord remembers. The, the one who everyone neglects, God honors. The one who the world puts down, the Lord lifts up. So, so fittingly, she calls her son Samuel, which sounds like the Hebrew word to ask, for in verse 20, I requested him from the Lord. We come to our final scene. A year has passed, and we find Elkanah doing what he always does, traveling to Shiloh, yes, that's right, to worship the Lord. But in verse 21, something is not right. Hannah does not go. And we wonder, didn't she say that she would commit her son to the Lord? But now she's saying in verse 22, no, 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 no after the child is weaned, then I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence. But friends, can I tell you, that would take at least another two to three years. So we begin to wonder, no, 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 God honored his commitment to her. Will she honor her commitment to him? Even her husband, even her husband urges her, may the Lord confirm your word. And praise God, for that is exactly what she does. In verse 24, she brings her son to Shiloh along with her sacrifices. And she entrusts him to God. And this chapter, this narrative, this story, it ends where it began, with Elkanah worshipping the Lord. But, but this time, there is a hint that it is not just Elkanah alone, it is Hannah and maybe even Samuel worshipping God as well. And fast forward to the end, our scene ends actually in chapter 2, verse 11. As Elkanah returns to Ramah, Samuel remains in Shiloh devoted to the Lord. Friends, what do these events teach us about God and our lives? What might we learn from this chapter in 1 Samuel 1 today? Firstly, God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. Does it occur to you that Hannah would have no idea why she's suffering in this way? I mean, we get the benefit of reading this chapter in retrospect, right? But Hannah would have looked at Penina and wondered, why her? Why me? She would have prayed to God. She would have asked, why must I suffer like this? Why must my life be this way? 
And so often in our helplessness, we have no idea why, do we? Just like Hannah, we might cry out to God, why must I suffer this illness? Why did my relationship have to fail? Why are my friendships strained? Why am I in this impossible situation that I cannot escape? But Hannah's helplessness shows us God's sovereignty. Do you realize that at every moment, at every point along the way, God was working everything, not just for Hannah's good, but for the good of his people? For it's through Hannah's childlessness eventually that God provides the miracle child in Samuel. And it's through Samuel that God then provides the kings that Israel so desperately need. And it's through those kings that God one day provides the one king, the true king, the perfect king who delivers his people, not from the Philistine army, but who delivers us out of sin and death. Do you see, friends, it's through Hannah's childlessness, God's miracle, Samuel's ministry, Israel's kings, that one day God gives us his son, Jesus. In Hannah's suffering, God reveals something of his own character. Do you see, friends, in her helplessness, He shows her what it means for him to be the Lord of armies. That he is the God who works his infinite power for our infinite good. In the depths of our suffering, in the throes of our helplessness, friends, we can look back on these events and we can see that God is sovereign and that God is good. The truth is we might never discover the exact reason for why we suffer in this particular way. We might never discover or realize why our relationships fail, why we suffer certain illnesses, or why our friendships are strained. In fact, the truth is we seldom do. But we can experience what Hannah herself experiences here. The assurance that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, no suffering is ever wasted under the sovereignty of God. Now, God is sovereign over our suffering. Number two, God is the help of the helpless. Just think about this for a moment. One and two Samuels, one and two Samuel's books introduce the kings of Israel. And yet, these books begin not with a mighty army or a royal throne. No, they begin with a helpless woman. I mean, surely this shows us something about the heart of God, our King, that it is in His very nature, it is in His very character to help the helpless. It sits at the very heart of our God to save those who cannot save themselves, to come to the aid of those who have no escape. You see, for a woman who had no hope and no help in the world, no, God was her help. God was her hope. God is not indifferent to our suffering. The Lord of armies is on our side and He will save those who have no way out. 
Now, let me be clear. He does not promise us a particular answer to prayer. That there are no guarantees of children for the childless, marriage for the unmarried, or even physical safety for believers in Afghanistan today. But friends, can I tell you, if it is in God's heart to help the helpless, we can trust that He will always do what is right. He will always do what is right. He proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt when He helped us in our most helpless state of all. Romans 5, 8, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 1 and 4, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive with Christ. You see, friends, Jesus is the clearest, the purest, and the greatest example of God's help. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the clearest expression, the clearest evidence that God is the help of the helpless. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you can know this, that God wants to save you from the depths of your helplessness. In fact, He is so committed to helping you that He even gave up His own Son to lift you out of your sin, your rebellion, and your wayward life. If you're not a Christian, you need to know this, that Jesus died to help you out of the depths of your helplessness. And for those of us who feel without hope and without help, I hope that we can take this to heart today. Jesus is your help. Jesus is your hope. And whatever you're suffering, however impossible it might seem, friends, can I tell you, God will do what is right. He may not answer our prayers in the way in which we want, but He has proved in the gospel of His Son that He is worthy of our trust and our faith. He has proved His ultimate power and love in the cross of Christ. But I know that for some of us here today, life is actually pretty good. The truth is we're not suffering. We're not in a place of helplessness or despair. So what can this text possibly mean for us for whom life is going well? Well, if that's you, then hear this word, friends, if not for yourself, then for the people around you. Because our world is full of helpless people. And I can tell you that our church is full of helpless people as well, myself included. In fact, I feel my weakness every single day. And we who are weak need to be reminded of this great truth by you. If you're not going to hear this word just for us, then please hear this word as well for your future self. For if you are not suffering now, I can promise you that one day you will. It could be conflict in marriage, loss of work, or yes, maybe even childlessness in years to come. Whatever it is, can I say, when that moment of suffering arrives, and it will, remember then what you hear today, that God is the help of the helpless. Thirdly and finally, thirdly and finally, 
pour out your heart in prayer. It is our natural instinct to resist accepting our helplessness, isn't it? When we feel helpless, we we want to refuse to believe that we cannot do something, anything about our present plight. But hasn't the combination of a global pandemic and the crisis in Afghanistan revealed just how helpless we really are? And yet, even then, even then, we continue to insist, no, 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 I can do something about it. Brother, sister, don't fight against it. Accept it. Fall on your knees in humility and pour out your heart to God in prayer. Cry out to Him from the depths of your heart. The truth is, and I suffer from this myself, so many of our prayers are theologically accurate but emotionally sterile. They pass a doctrine exam, but at times they are simply dishonest with how we actually feel. Now, it's good and right, don't get me wrong, it's good and right to pray in line with God's plans, purposes and promises is what I encourage and teach. But but I want you to notice, just look at how this passage describes prayer. It is the act in verse 15 of pouring out our hearts to God. It is the act, rather uncomfortably, of even pouring out our anguish, our resentment, our despair, our provocation, our vexation, maybe even against God, to God. How could you do this to me? Why am I suffering? Where's my help? What have I done? Well, the cry of every heart, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. God, help me. Friends, is this not how the Psalms teach us to pray? Just hear for a moment the raw emotion of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Friends, when was the last time you prayed like that? Will we pray like the psalmist? Will we pray like Hannah? Will we pour out our hearts to God in prayer? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And this lockdown is wearing me thin. And as I look out at our city, our nation, and our world, can I say it is easy, isn't it, to feel absolutely helpless. Last night I was just watching the news, seeing the 20th uh, year commemorating 9-11. Some of you weren't even born. I remember that day very clearly. 
I was in year seven, we went to school and watched the news for hours on end. And it's very strange. When I was in year seven, I didn't know what to feel. Last night watching the news, I was moved to tears. I felt absolutely helpless. And in those moments, brothers and sisters, let us not insist on our assumed ability or our perceived power to actually control our circumstances. No, friends, sometimes we just can't. And that's okay. Because if anything, those moments of tangible helplessness reveal our true state. They reveal our spiritual helplessness. So in those moments, do not insist like I so often try to do, that I can control my life and control my situations and I can do something or anything to push back against my helplessness. No, friends, cast yourself on the mercies of God. Pour out your heart to the God who gave up His only Son to lift us out of the deepest pit of sin and death. Friends, God is sovereign over our suffering. He is the help of the helpless. He is the Lord of armies who is infinitely powerful and infinitely good and He will work that infinite power for our infinite good. So pour out your heart to Him in prayer. Whatever your grief, whatever your helplessness, I want to give all of us now a time to do just that. So in silence and in the quietness of your hearts, why don't you take the next minute to pour out your heart to God, to bring your concerns before the Lord of armies. And if not for yourself, then do it for someone you know and love. And then after that, we'll sing. Take a moment to do that now. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've triumphed over him. And my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord. 
because he has treated me generously. Amen.